0: Good evening. You're listening to the ENR podcast. It's uh, Tuesday, the seventh of June. I think it is, isn't it? Yes, it is.
1: <laughs> and you, uh, have you been thrown out by the fact that we're recording this a week early? Has it confused uh, you already?
0: No, no. But but I I had the seventh of June in my mind, and uh, then I thought oh, I better check. <laughs> anyway, I was right anyway. So joining me tonight, I have got Bronwyn. Hello. And Mark, hey! And this week we have a special guest, Deanne.
2: Hi, hi, everyone.
0: So uh, we know all about Broman and me and Mark, but Deanne, you are a barrister from who's based in Wellington, um, yes. and you're going to talk to us um, a little bit about lawyer kind of things and legal things, and then uh, join in with some of our discussion around various sceptical topics. But, yeah, starting us off, so there was a bit of a hiccup with the newsletter this week. So, Mark, can you tell us about that?
1: Um, there was. So this morning when the newsletter was due to go out at 10 a.m., um, instead of it going out, I got a message from MailChimp, who we use for our newsletters, telling me that our account had been suspended. A little bit of a panic, like, what the hell have we done wrong? And it was a very terse message that just talked about how we'd uh, run afoul of their terms and conditions. So I clicked on the link in the email they sent. And sure enough, there's a whole bunch of stuff that you can't write about using MailChimp, and we pretty much tick every box. So multi-level marketing schemes and other scams, cryptocurrencies, um Just, yeah, the whole list was like, well, I'm pretty sure we've written about each of these a few times and we've never fallen afoul before. I don't know whether we finally got over a threshold, but they have a system called Omnivore. Quite possibly it's been keeping score. And uh, and I finally tipped it over the edge this week with today's newsletter. Uh, At first, I was like, well, I did write about cancel culture. It seems a little bit ironic that we've been canceled by MailChimp. Was that what triggered it? But then I remembered that I'd also written about Exipure. um, And Exipure is a scam weight loss product. And my theory at the moment is that this is what caused the problem rather than anything else.
0: Mm, it does, does seem likely. Well, it's interesting that uh, presumably you sent some test emails, and um, it's interesting that it didn't pick it up at that time to say, hey, this is going to be blocked by our system.
1: No, I don't send test emails through MailChimp. Oh. I, am, I am gung-ho enough to just fire and forget.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. And I thought you were a good software developer who always tested their, their work.
1: No, I'm a software developer. Don't put the word good in there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but anyway, the, the news editor finally went
1: out. It and, did, uh, yeah. So after a couple of hours, and thanks to you, Craig, you came out with a yeah. great idea of just Twitter shaming them, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I mean, who knows? that They might have sorted it out in the same time frame, but I, I basically tagged them on Twitter and said, hey, we've, we've got this, this problem that we've been... We've been suspended, and we don't think we should be because we talk about we talk about these things. We don't promote them. So,
3: <laughs> but the thing is, there was two emails that they sent. Like it was the first email giving us a warning, and then the second one that we got that was sort of more of a doubling down and requesting that we find a new provider, which was a bit uh,
1: shocking yeah. for
3: uh, an AI. <laughs>
1: And give, given that they so quickly move from one to the other, I mean, I have a suspicion it's something to do with the fact that we're on the free tier and they don't make any money from us. But the, the speed with which they moved to try and remove us from their platform was a little bit surprising, and at no point did there seem to be human interaction. So, honestly, Craig, I'm I'm pretty convinced it was your uh, your twit or whatever they call it these days that uh, helped us on that one.
0: Yeah, well, they were they were pretty responsive. Like, it was like. Five minutes or something, uh, they replied and said, oh, give us a ticket number and I'll go and have a look. And, uh, and then the problem was sorted out. So, yeah, yay for Twitter.
1: <laughs> so, given that I wrote in this newsletter about Counterspin... Um, And the fact that they've been having a problem with the tour that they've been on, losing venues and screaming at the top of their lungs that this is cancel culture. I wondered if we could have a bit of a discussion about cancel culture and what it is. And is it something we should be concerned about? Which side of cancel culture do we fall on? Um, Does anybody have any thoughts?
0: Yes, (laughs) but I'd be happy for somebody else to express some thoughts first.
2: I think we've had a really interesting example, haven't we, with um, what's happened at TVNZ just recently. With um, Usually, you know, when somebody in a workplace has been accused of some form of behaviour or harassment, et cetera, um, there's a period in which that's investigated and it's done so without public scrutiny. Um, but the media themselves outed the whole scenario and in many ways, they cancelled him before he's even had natural justice or an opportunity to defend himself against the allegations. And the allegations of, you know, now people on Twitter, et cetera, uh, speaking about allegations not only in New Zealand and and what happened, but also at this time at Al Jazeera. And while I'm all very much for... Um, hashtag me too and about consequences for behaviour there is a time I think where you should be afforded the opportunity to have an investigation undertaken and and you know the facts and the evidence considered and due process and that's what concerns me about this um, about the way in which it was dealt with by the media that the problem is about about you still having the rights even if you are accused and even if you have done the thing of actually having the proper process followed in terms of the investigation.
0: Do you think it was relevant that he was very much a public figure and the fact that he didn't sort of show up for his slot um, on TV, that, that that made a difference, that they sort of needed to sort of front foot it and at least come out with some reason why he wasn't on the program anymore?
2: The, the weird thing about that was that TVNZ obviously um, had got advice and came up with what they thought was the appropriate story at the time. Their own, um, their own journalists then decided that there was something more to it and uh, there was a very strange sort of um, on the news one night and it was discussed on Twitter as well. Um, a journalist talking about texting his boss and um, asking his boss questions and his boss saying, I'll treat you like any other member of the media. Basically, I'm not your boss. And so you're asking me questions as a journalist. story sort of developed quite, in a, quite a weird way as far as I was concerned because they started sort of planting seeds about, oh, he's meant to be on a family thing, but then something else is up. And each day it was incrementally increased. Um, obviously, people that were asking those questions or or promoting the story knew more than what the public did. But that was quite a weird thing to watch, that they obviously knew that there'd been a complaint and they were just sort of grooming the public towards the time where they were going to release the details of that. And that, that was quite weird, I
3: think.
2: But also, this is coming out at the same time
3: as the report on the New Zealand Broadcasting School, in which you have some very similar complaints coming out from um, what's now known as ARA, but was um, Christchurch Polytechnic Institute of Technology, and in terms of discrimination, bullying, um, sexually charged, sexual harassment, there might be a bit of this action um, towards this particular broadcaster, which can be um, slightly reactive or trying to at least undo what that initial damage was done by in, I should say, the uh, New Zealand Broadcasting School.
2: It does raise some questions, I guess. You know, I, I do employment law as part of some of the work that I do, and it does raise questions about um, reference checking and about Assessing whether or not he's an appropriate person to be in the workplace and all of those things. If there were rumours and there were known, then that's a bit of a problem.
0: Yeah, you wonder how much the assessment of somebody's ability is based upon whether they're a good employee or whether they look good in front of the camera and have uh, sort of the right personality to, to be on a programme like that. I wonder, wonder what the balance is there.
2: Yeah, and, you know, now in the employment sense... You know, we've got people that are actually being exited from workplaces who their behaviour for the last sort of 20 or 30 years has been accepted that they're just a person who's crass or rude or whatever. Um, It was never acceptable, but now employers are realising that they have a duty in terms of health and safety and also as good faith employer. To make sure that people are not exposed to that behaviour, I think you know we've all probably been in workplaces where you know that there's a person who's a problem, and no matter what team they're in, they cause problems, and they're allowed to remain.
3: Yeah. In
2: fact, you know statistically, bullies end up leaving the workplace, and um, the um, uh, um, remaining in the workplace, sorry, and the people who are bullied leave.
0: Yep. That's uh, exactly the experience that uh, that I have seen happen, that uh, somebody who was essentially being bullied complained to HR and really HR's role in it was to, to protect the company and not actually protect the employee who was being bullied, which is uh, kind of messed up really, I think.
2: And, and you know, any allegation like that, include, and it's particularly, you know, um, of a sexual nature, et cetera, means that the employer should stop and consider whether or not an independent investigation is required. And also, in some instances, whether the police should be involved, depending mm. on that um, I think that they are getting better at that. Employment New Zealand's got some great um, stuff on their websites that help people actually navigate through that and how to conduct and, and commence investigations, et cetera, and how to ensure that they're appropriately done. And there's licensing now too. So solicitors can undertake investigations in employment sense around sexual nature complaints. And so can private investigators, but that it's actually been limited to that. And the employment court's been very clear about that, which is really important because it's quite a sober thing.
0: So how do we tie this into the the cancel culture, perhaps that we saw in Dunedin with counterspin?
1: Well, I think we've uh, we've strayed quite far from cancel culture already, (laughs) but uh, yeah, trying to trying to bring it back. Um, I I think at least from that perspective, and, you know, we we did start off talking about valid concerns about cancel culture. But I I think listening to a group like Counterspin complaining that they're suffering cancel culture because. Basically, people are phoning up their venues and telling them that they're not nice people and they have a horrible message and that it's probably uh, safer if people don't hear it. I, I don't think that's cancel culture. And I, I think that labeling it as such is just misusing this term. And as I said in the the newsletter, it, it's like the word woke, right? So woke is pretty much used pejoratively these days to insult people who are... Um, maybe a little bit more aware of social issues than you are and makes you feel uncomfortable. And so throwing it around as a term for anyone like that makes people feel good. And I think now cancel culture is the same. I don't think Kelvin Alp and Hannah Spearer are suffering from cancel culture. I think they have an odious message and venues have a right to be told what their message is and venues absolutely especially private venues, have an absolute right to say no. I, I guess the water's a lot muddier when it comes to public venues like um, council town halls and things like that. But I think even then, because of safety, we we have had events cancelled in the past right over here that have been hmm. at council buildings, from what I remember.
2: There's yeah, been there a, a- course in Palmerston North about um, Annie O'Brien, etc., having a meeting about... Um, the women's rights group and um, about freedom of speech. So that's the other problem is that you still got to counter against freedom of speech. We might not like their message sometimes you know, what people have to say in the National Front and people like that. But um, they do are afforded rights in the Bill of Rights in terms of freedom of speech.
1: But is Mm. it so in law over here? I mean, is there a a clear separation between freedom of speech and the right to a platform? Because my understanding is that your freedom of speech does not automatically give you freedom to stand on someone else's soapbox and uh, and shout from their venue that you can go somewhere public, but it doesn't mean that, you know, you can. So we've had people before that have complained that their freedom of speech has been curtailed because they can't print in our journal and things like this. But as far as we're concerned, you know, they they don't have that right unfettered. We get to decide as the uh, the editorial team, um, as it was what goes in our journal. But how how does that sit legally over here?
2: How it sits is that you can't discriminate against particular groups. So um that's really what that Palmerston North case was about. That and and it really did come down to, you know, look, you might not like what they're saying, you might not like that they're talking about trans people in a in a very negative way and that For the most part, I think people sort of live and let live about that, except for particular groups of people who like to make a big thing about it, because how does it really impact on us? But in terms of freedom of speech, it doesn't mean that you have the absolute right to say whatever you want, whenever you want. In fact, there's consequences, right, for saying things.
1: So we have restrictions already, and obviously there's there's a bill being proposed, well, very early stages for... Um, hate speech laws, um, but the, I guess if that ever happens, that's still a long way away from what I've seen.
2: Yes, and like the the Human Rights Act, etc., does afford you particular rights in relation to religion, race, disability, etc. So already there are some protections there. Um, it does concern me that. And, and I think it's it's a bit of a juxtaposition and quite weird that David Seymour, want, you know, suggests that we should get rid of the Human Rights Commission, but then it's all about free speech. So what, and the Human Rights Commission's job is to actually police that in terms of our obligations under international treaties, et cetera, as well. So it's, it's an odd position to take.
1: It doesn't have a history of picking odd positions and confusing people.
2: Yeah, look, he, he likes to flood the forum, doesn't he? He he um starts off with by saying something that's slightly unpopular, but knows that he he'll dog his dog whistles will bring you know his milkshake will bring the the boys to the yard. You know. <laughs> Sorry, Mark, I just wanted to go back to um the the suggestion
3: that you're making that you know the venues have a right to know how odious Calvin Alp and his ilk are. I think that's rather generous. Um because I think at this point, Counterspin has such a a platform and such a reputation that I think it was, you know, these venues cancelling out on the Counterspin is really more of an economic move in the sense that, you know, whoever signed them up knew exactly what they were doing would be my suspicion or my thoughts. And I think that'd be worth investigating.
1: (laughs) I'm not sure. I I think Counterspin is big to us because we focus (laughs) on the nonsense. I think... I hope that most of New Zealand society has no clue what counterspin is or who Kelvin Alp is that that is my true hope but yes, they're big for us because they are they are mm-hmm. so good at spreading the nonsense and they're so pernicious um but I really hope their reach is is small.
3: I guess my suspicion is that if they canceled if they got cancelled most of members of the of the community saying. Excuse me. Are, do you really support this group? Because if you do, I'm not coming to your venue. I'm not booking out the Christmas party. I'm not booking out, you know, the fiftieth anniversary or the twenty first part, birthday party to a group that supports, you know, anti-vaccine. Uh, or,
0: I I think I think people don't think that deeply about it. Yeah. They've got very short memories.
2: Yeah, and one of the groups was a um, a Christian group who had actually strongly. Um, gone out and said that they were pro-vaccination and um, pro-COVID measures, etc. So my understanding is that they were told what Counterspin was about and as a result they cancelled because it wasn't on brand for them. It wasn't what they believed.
0: So in the past we've tried to um, get tours of psychics shut down by contacting the venues and that is, I think, probably a much more difficult ask in that the venues tend to say, well, we don't control what goes on when the people hire it and it's a private event. And even if we can say, well, look, these, these psychics are doing real damage, they're preying on people who are grieving, it's been very, very difficult to get any venues to say, no, we won't, we won't host uh, the likes of uh, Jeanette Wilson or uh, Deb Weber or Kevin Cruikshank to name a few psychic mediums in New Zealand.
1: And I think, I think that's the two parts, right? On the one part, they see their reputational damage from hosting being very low. They're not too worried about looking awful in the media. A lot of people believe in psychics or the spirit realm mm. or something like that. And on the flip side, there's good money with psychics. People flock to see Kelvin Cruikshank and Jeanette Wilson and Sue Nicholson. They absolutely love it. I mean, I've got friends that pay to go to see psychics. I don't understand it, but somehow they continue to have that appeal, I'm even bad. though they They've been thoroughly debunked. Mark,
0: even you would pay to go and see them.
2: (laughs) I
1: absolutely would, yes.
2: And um, what I would say is that people who can't work out things in their own life tend to like to have somebody else tell them what's going to happen in their life. It gives them a level of security and safety, even though it's a load of crap, you know.
0: You heard it here
1: first. (laughs) (laughs) From a lawyer, no less. (laughs)
2: <laughs> I, I I warn people that I, I yeah. But yeah, because I, I I get it. But um the other thing is that television's got a little bit to blame about that too, like things like sensing murder and that have actually mm. normalized psychics.
1: Yeah, and absolutely.
2: Medium and all of those shows that um uh, the reality TV and um, mediums, etc. really have drawn mm. people. And um, there's very little that counters that about the techniques that they use in order to actually read you and get information from you in order to counter. Be to...
1: Yeah,
0: because it probably wouldn't sell ads.
1: Oh, no. oh, guys, guys, I, I think I've got the perfect segue here. Can I do this one? Can I do this? <laughs> sure. sure. <laughs> so in the New Zealand sceptics history since 1986, we've only once had a legal problem. Well, apart from maybe Craig, you know, Causing issues at times (laughs) outside of that. We've only had one proper legal problem, and this was um, a member of the skeptics who publicly defamed a psychic and or maybe not defamed because, you know, psychics are nonsense. Um, But he said this psychic was nonsense. And um, Bronwyn, I think he also looked into her, um, maybe her finances and she was claiming benefits.
3: Yes, that's correct, Mark.
1: Um, but basically, the, the skeptics were nearly dragged into court because when he was doing his stuff and talking about how she was a fraud, he talked about how he was a member of the skeptics. And so I think she named the New Zealand skeptics in her original lawsuit. And I guess the skeptics argued their way out of it. It's like, you know, we didn't authorize him to speak on our behalf. Yeah, we're not nothing right, to do with this. He's are
2: liable for his actions. He's his own person.
1: But the the bigger question here is about defamation and um, skeptics are always worried that we could be sued for defamation, that even if we have good protections against it, that at the very least we could be dragged into court. And it sounds like that's not a fun thing to happen. Um,
2: It's an expensive thing to happen. So even if the case is not. Justified um, that you know you can because the defence to defamation there's two of them in New Zealand um, there's a defamation act so the two main defences are that it's honest opinion
0: hmm.
2: and the other one is that it's the truth it's a bit different than the um, her depth trial and Craig knows my feelings on that but. Um, <laughs> Because in in the US, it's slightly different. And that forum that that was picked by Depp was specific so that he could actually do exactly what he did in that case. Here in New Zealand, um, look, you've seen the cases with Cameron Slater and Carrot Graham and the Bob Jones one. The problem that you have with defamation is that you can actually, uh, a litigant, can pick certain parts of what you said off. So it, it might not, but you might write an entire article that's completely and utterly true and they can pick the bits that are actually a bit dubious. In one case, there were statements about women. There was someone made a statement that said that the person had um, bad um, a bad view and bias against women, Māori and, and then Jewish people. Now, the person who was litigating chose to actually select Jewish people and to to say, well, you defamed me because I don't have an issue with Jewish people and there's no evidence of that. Clearly knowing that most likely there would be evidence of the other thing. So you can do that in a defamation case. Likewise, though, um, when you're defending a defamation case, you can also point back to the entire article, etc., and address that. But if there is no evidence of um, the Jewish thing, for example, and that in that instance, then you could be held to have that. So you've got to be quite careful and measured about what you actually say. And you've got to think about things like if you're on Twitter, et cetera, particularly if you're going for a public figure like lots of people do where they have a crack at, say, Chris Bishop or, you know, anyone else that's a sitting duck because they put themselves out there. Um, you need to be really quite careful about what you actually do and say. And if you are accusing them of doing something, then you better make sure that they actually did do that thing and that you've got the receipts.
0: Are there any, are there any magic words you can use um, <laughs> to get you out of this? Like, so well, as, as I, mean, I understand it in the States, like if you say, in my opinion when you talk about something or somebody. That is kind of a get-out-of-jail-free card.
2: Yeah, but it's got to be honestly held.
0: Right, so okay. You
2: just so- use that to try and, you know, be be cute. It's actually, there's a whole test around that in the, in the act about what's honestly held. And, you know, if you've said other stuff, so the problem with defamation, if a client comes to me and say, I've been defamed. The first question is, well, if you sue, are uh, you prepared for the onslaught of what might come up against you? because mm. in order to prove that they didn't defame you well we 've seen this in the herd and death trial they 'll bring everything that they can they 'll bring all their weapons and that to prove that either you're, you you're malicious or you yourself are hypocritical that you've actually defamed that person or whatever they want, they'll bring that. And you also, even if you have been defamed, you've got to question about whether or not it's worth doing it, giving it, it will give reach and oxygen to what they said.
1: So we we had Stephen Price come and talk um, to the skeptics in Wellington, I think back in 2014, and he talked about defamation and it was really useful. Um, I just want to double check a few things because this is the dark recesses of my memory. So I think you said the, the two defenses are honestly held opinion and the truth. Um, a couple of things he said about that was one, satire is not a defense, Um, that you you can't say you were only joking or was just done to poke fun, that doesn't work. The other one he said was that there was a third defence, which was bane and antidote, that you can say something defamatory as long as you go on to explain why it's not true later on in the article. Does that ring a bell? Is that something? Yeah, you know, Jonathan
2: Swift with the modest proposal suggesting that you eat babies. And he's not (laughs) meaning that. One Stephen is actually
1: the absolute um, expert. In- <laughs> okay, so we, we had someone good come and speak to us. I
2: heard to Stephen, but yeah, it, no, you, you're right. But the the statutory defences are, um, are are the honestly helpful that.
1: Um, yeah. And the, the other thing he said, and uh, this ties in really well with what you've been saying about whether someone brings a defamation case, he said that actually the law over here is it, it allows for a lot of defamation lawsuits. You know, it's very easy to be found or, or to have defamed someone. Only one other person needs to hear what's been said or written. Um, but he said that it doesn't happen, even though defamation lawsuits could happen a lot. He says they don't happen very early. Often over here because you will come out looking like the enemy more often than not. That when you try and sue someone, it just looks bad for you, right?
2: It's incredibly expensive too. Like um, litigation is not something that you want to buy trouble with unless you really have to. So, uh, you do see, though, like in the Slater case, that's the scientists that were defamed. It was really important to them in terms of their credibility and in terms of their um, the way their public perception of their research and the things that they were doing and their ability to do their jobs and earn income. So there, there are times where it is appropriate to do and to take a defamation case. Someone being mean to you on the internet or saying things about you that aren't true sometimes you have to say okay well this used to be easier didn't it like you could I sometimes you have to say look suck it up and go well look it's been said and actually just move on but there is a problem with social media and that newspaper articles now because it's not just the newspaper that next week it's the fish and chip paper if you see some, something like something like story about Aaron Gilmore, suddenly everything that he's done in the past gets brought back up again with every new thing that he does.
1: Right. And it's all very easy to find these days.
2: Yes. And it's very easy that for you know, and, and we've got social media reporters that like I I was a journalist for a time and I find it bizarre that you've got people that trial reddit and all the rest to then make a story to share with everybody. I've had it done to me, you know, that you you do a tweet and then the next thing it's in a story. And the other problem with that is that if you do, do, you know, you do tweet and you say something dumb and then it gets put in a newspaper article, suddenly it's got greater reach and more chance of actually harming someone. So while we might be sitting late at night or three in the morning and we can't sleep and, and we get annoyed with someone on the internet and we write
0: something... Who are you talking about?
2: <laughs> someone I know. Um, and you know, but, you know, or you're getting a fight with someone. Or you know, look, LinkedIn has become the cessp a cesspool.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <come>. Yes, absolutely.
2: <laughs> it has, it's it's unregulated. And it has, um, and some attitudes of some very famous New Zealanders have been sort of outed in terms of racism and all sorts of things. People forget that that's actually a platform in which your profession and what you do for a job, et cetera, is up front and centre. Yeah. Um, and they get in fights with people and they say all sorts of awful things to people while the world is watching. Now, that, that could result in. Problems for people with their employer because then, and we saw that with um, Lee Williams and Sunlight that when he was making very racist videos online, and then the employer said, "Actually, you don't represent us." You know, people complained. There was tweets on Twitter to Sunlight saying to them, um, "Are you aware that this employee of yours actually does this stuff?"
0: That sort of straying into an area that uh, we're a little bit familiar with.
1: Yeah. yeah so speaking of that, actually, I. I've got three scenarios in my head that I'd like to ask you informal advice. I guess not legal advice, if you have to give that disclaimer, but just mm-hmm. informal advice about what we could do. So the first the first two are real scenarios. The second one, thankfully, is not real. Uh, the first one, let's say I happen to write an article about a Russian multi-level marketing cryptocurrency scam and... From Delaware, they send me a threat, basically, to sue me with defamation for having talked about them. Um, how safe am I just ignoring that? Because I did just ignore that and nothing happened. But presumably, I'm all good there?
2: And look, it just really depends on who's doing it and what their motivation is. And um, suing someone in another country is actually quite
1: Right, so it's. I think it's the Russian mob is behind it.
2: If it's papers, then I would say, well, you know, it's all, it's mm. on. But even then, the best thing to do, um, I guess, you know, if we're talking about ringing up venues or telling people's employers about people's behaviour, etc., you want to be very sure, just like mm. what, with you um, about what you're saying, that you do have one of those defences available to you. That it, it is the truth. I guess I say have the receipts and keep the receipts. If you want to do activism and you want to say things and you um, are doing that and you're raising issues for people that mean that they might lose their job, that they may lose their status, that they actually may lose their platform that they're on, etc., that brings them money, then you want to make sure that you're absolutely Certain and that you can prove that it is the truth. What
0: you're saying, in my mind, it's it's all about whether something crosses a line. And in that particular recent case we talked about, where somebody was doing something and using their employer's email addresses, mm-hmm. um, that to me did cross a line because it is potentially bringing the employer into dispute. I mean, what they do in their own time is potentially. Uh, some pretty nasty behaviour, but it's that crossing the line of bringing the employer's reputation to it that uh, was what sort of motivated me to to make the complaint.
2: Clearer because there's a correlation with the employer. Mm. But in the Lee Williams situation, um, it was because people then searched. He, he went by his name on the internet and then people searched him out and LinkedIn, etc. found the employer.
1: So can, I was, just, can I just quickly say for Lee Williams that for anybody that doesn't know Lee Williams, don't look him up. He's a horrible man. He's English. I own that. Just no. <laughs> Bronwyn.
2: He, he's standing in Christchurch. for.
1: <sighs> yeah, he's back again and that's sad. Yeah.
3: Now, related to what Mark says, um, particularly within the multi-level marketing or the anti-multi-level marketing sphere, one of the first actions that a lot of, I guess you'd say, plaintiffs would go for, rather than a straight out lawsuit, would be more something like a cease and desist, you know, sort of that threat. I just want to know exactly... um, how serious would a cease and desist be and when you would actually be legally obligated to um, respond or um, adhere to that request? Because I think some people just sort of say, I went to a lawyer, here's a cease and desist. And when you see versions of these uh, requests um, sent on sort of semi-official or, you know, it appears official, like an official lawyer's note, um, there's all these spelling mistakes. um, And then when you do a little bit deeper, you find out, oh, that's
2: that's fake, that's a fake address. What's your opinion on that? I've seen some like that. I won't name the person, but they don't have a practicing certificate, but they used to be a lawyer who have written things like that and things about health and safety um, and other things um, that are riddled with spelling mistakes that are wrong, they have got the law wrong, things aren't right, that they've said I think that really, um, if you receive one from a big organisation, from a, a, a bigger law firm, then you would be silly to ignore that. You need to get legal advice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not to say that if it comes from a smaller law firm that that would be the case either, because um, one of the things is that, that a lawyer ethically can't make allegations about people that aren't um, correct either you can't just throw your weight around in that letter so that you know they've provided legal advice to that person about that lawyers act on instructions though too so your client could say i want you to write that letter and unless it's actually unlawful to do so so it's fraudulent or whatever then you'll act on the instructions and send it
3: mm-hmm. you
2: take it seriously well that that depends on what you did too right mm-hmm did you actually do the thing that they said? Because if you did, then you'll be – it's really sort of the first shot across the bow. It's telling you take that down, delete any um, – delete that and remove it so that it's no longer a problem and you continue not to offend. And the problem too is, you see, if you do it on Twitter – Someone can retweet it and then someone else can retweet it. And before you know it, it, it's actually in lots of places or they comment on it or they give it wings.
3: Mm. It's in
2: lots of places, you know, you can post and then within an hour, it could be, you know, everyone in the world's basically seen
0: it. So you've got to be really careful about what So, yeah, so so if. If you actually, say, complied with a cease and desist, is that sort of giving them ammunition to say, well, yes, that's an admission of guilt, but you went and deleted the tweet? And does it actually buy you any um, advantage in court if it actually came to that?
2: It depends depends on whether there was a significant consequence for that person, whether or not um, you might be liable for damages and all sorts of things. Seriously, get legal advice. If you've really screwed up, get legal advice.
1: Okay, let's, let's say that we are a, a poor charity, um, the New Zealand Skeptics. We don't have a lot of money. We'd rather not pay for a lawyer. Um, what is our – and let's say we have screwed up. What are the chances that if we just delete what we've written that we're going to be all fine? Because just as a, an example, there's nothing to do with skepticism, but maybe about 12 years ago, I got a lovely letter hand delivered to me um, from Sky TV New Zealand who were threatening to sue me. Um, because i built a website they didn't like that told people what was coming up on their TV boxes. Um, and I read it and it looked a bit scary. And so I just deleted everything that I'd done. And, uh, and that was all good. But yeah, what are, what are the chances that it's going to be all good? And what are the chances that someone will still pursue it, even if you do what they say?
2: That comes down to the person and what their motivations are. And that's not necessarily, like, If you've really annoyed someone, they can still sue you even though you've removed that.
1: Okay. The- so, so a rational actor, quite possibly someone that's got good legal advice would leave it at that. But someone well, that be- maybe that has a big personality might just basically not want to let something go and keep coming after you.
2: Well, you know, because the other thing is if you – there are people that represent themselves in court. That that, you know, lay litigants are actually um, you know, it's a good thing that people can represent themselves. Going to court's really expensive. But also people that are not paying legal bills and in many cases may not face um having to pay court um court costs or, or fees have very little motivation to not continue on with these things. Mm. So it really, you know, it's a really hard But I think it's um, to say, and I guess it's what impact also what you did or said, um, did in the time that it was up to, like, to the extent of what damages have you, you know, damage have you caused. For the most part, I would think, and, you know, I can't say what advice people Give, but I would think that for the most part, you know, someone that has legitimately been defamed and the thing's been removed and actually it was very short lived, it's not likely to continue on. But then they can and they they have a right to, given that you actually have already defamed them. And that's the problem. So You know, my best advice, really, and I'm not giving legal advice, but practical advice is always check everything that you're writing if you're going to say something or you get that gut feeling that maybe I shouldn't say that, then don't. Or delete it. You know, if you get a reaction straight away that something you've said has actually triggered a problem, then delete it straight away. Delete Mm -hmm. it and apologize.
0: Yes, I think the apology... It goes a long way, um, particularly if the the person receiving the apology is is at least rational and sympathetic. Yeah, um, but you don't know but, who
2: you're dealing with, so that's why no. you to be um, you actually need to self-regulate a little bit. And actually, you know, if you are going to go for it, like you know, there's some great people on Twitter like right, um, that do some excellent exposes of disinformation and um, of people who spread misinformation, and they do very good threads. But all of those people that I know that do those things spend their time researching it and don't just fire up.
0: That certainly, uh, certainly makes sense. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, and, certainly and a good also, policy.
2: You've got to understand, too, that you know stories take a long time to break you know, with the media after they've done an investigation because it goes through a whole legal team, et cetera, before it actually is printed. So it's fact checked, it goes through media checks, the language, the words, the things that are said, that are used are tested in terms of the law and defamation, et cetera, before
0: it's printed. Yes, Um, and there isn't that filter in place for, for people writing stuff on social media.
2: No, or citizen journalists.
1: Hmm. This this is interesting to me because, you know, for a few years now, I've been speaking on the radio um, with Graham Hill every week. Um, on and off. And it's been a really good opportunity. And I I have always tried very carefully to make sure that what I'm writing is backed up. Um, and there's a couple of things from that. The first one is I think once they had to, after I'd spoken live on radio, get legal advice. And in the end, it was all good. But apparently one person that I talked about, I can't even remember who it was, but was not happy and might've made an inquiry to the radio station based off of that. And the other thing is that I've talked about Scientology quite a few times now and they've never come near me so that emboldens me to think that i'm doing an okay job of watching what i say
2: they're pretty litigious and they've got quite large litigation funds so um you obviously don't sail too close to the wind
1: so i'm going to walk away from this conversation with two pieces of ice the first one is even if we're pretty sure we're right if we're accused of defamation and we're being threatened with a lawsuit and even if we decide this is a hill we want to die on we should still get legal advice as soon as possible you
2: you you will need to defend your position and it'll have to be that you know it's substantially true it is either the truth or it's substantially true and you will have to show the receipts and you'll have to get your lawyer because things about the thing about defamation is it becomes a um semantics exercise you start looking at the words the context that they used and and the meaning whether there was um whether you were being whether you had intention to actually harm the person whether you were being malicious
0: I guess the the uh, prominent case from a few years ago, maybe a decade ago now, was the Simon Singh case in, in the UK, where he wrote an article about the British Chiropractor Association and uh, called uh, and said referred to them as bogus, um, and then that went to court and he was sued because bogus was apparently the wrong word to use. And that's what it, that's what it
2: comes down to. So you know yeah. you. Pick a particular word. I mean, in terms of the truth, it's it's got to be either the truth or not too materially different from the truth. And it's not a it's not subjective. It's an objective test. Mm.
1: So I guess so, a lot a lot of the time writing about the facts and steering away from trying to kind of guess motivations would be good because it's very hard to know someone's motivation for doing something, but just reporting on what they did is probably going to be a lot safer. Would that make sense?
2: Report on what they did, you know, the people that I talk about on Twitter that I, that I respect that do these things. use the actual tweets that the people have actually said or the posts of um, what they have said, screenshots of their Facebook page where they they you know they've said certain things um you know the major um, disinformation and misinformation players. If you're using their own words and what they said and if you don't put a spin on it but that you know, you just us the best ones just go here, here's this, here, this is what they've said. Um, it's quite clear what they've said, and you use what they've actually said as hmm. opposed to you going, Oh, look at this. Um, I, I think what they mean is blah blah blah, and you make a negative spin on it.
0: They should be hoist by their own petard,
2: yes. I mean, just there's enough of uh, enough of. Um, the rubbish that they put online themselves. Um, I think that um, Aotearoa did a great video during the protest that's online that actually has Hannah Spera and Calvin Alp in their own words.
1: Yeah, just digging their own hole.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Now, I kind of want to ask a question it's a little bit more based in reality before we go back to theoreticals. Um, When it comes down to numbers, I mean, what is the difference between the number of threats or initial cases that are brought to court or complaints about defamation that actually end up to, say, in front of a judge?
2: I mean, no, is, are, are you more likely to just I, I, watch I, it? I'm able to answer that. I don't have statistics around that, but I do okay. know that most litigation cases don't actually end up in the hearing, so, you know. Um, alternative dispute resolution, mediation, those other things that actually get pursued well before you go to court. You have an obligation to actually try and um, resolve litigation, mm-hmm. and there are judicial settlement conferences. Um, there's, there, you know, in the civil litigation space, the, the onus is on um, the plaintiff and the defendants to try and resolve it, mm-hmm. and also to mitigate any. Further damage that might, you know, occur too. So deleting things in that is probably the best way to go. Unless your sceptics feel that they absolutely want to continue to fight this. But actually, the question for you too is, you know, have you got the the purse to do that? Mm. Because it's expensive. No.
1: <laughs> but if we win, let, let's say we do take it to court and we've got a cast iron case and we win, do we get our cost back or how much do we lose even if we come out looking perfect? So
2: cost recovery in, in the court is about a third of what you actually pay.
1: Really? Yeah.
0: Oh. Not a money-making scheme. <laughs> no,
2: no, it's not. So even if you win, the standard position would be about a third of your cost based on a daily recovery rate and the various steps taken in that. Even if you mediate it, both sides come out not happy. Like every mediation that I've done, you know, you you mediate and you get to a place where you can live with it. Um with costs, your recovery of your costs and the costs that you actually can claim anyway. So your solicitor's costs will actually be quite high. And that's because a lot is involved with researching and making sure that the case is good and putting a case together, putting together bundles and submissions and all of those things actually are quite costly exercises. So, so kind of segueing into that, I mean, um, I come from Canada,
3: but of course we get a lot of these ads from America about, you know, no fees lawyers or, you know, you only pay if you win the case. Um do we have that service in New Zealand? Um, does that exist, and does it actually work? Do those sort of
2: lawyers are they not like the ambulance chasing that happens in the states, etc. If you're a lawyer with a practising certificate, and you um, you are subject to the Law Society rules and the rules of professional conduct, and contingency fees have got specific um, the, the specific rules around what you can and can't do same with pro bono work so even if you do it for free you've still got the same obligations to act as if you're actually doing it for money Mm -hmm. Um, and it's all about consumer protection so the law society is very big on consumer protection and making sure that fees that are charged are fair and reasonable so I think you find in the States, for example, that there are, were a number of people that, you know, no win, no fee kind of thing, but then actually what the hidden thing was, um, the scam, was that they took your the whole of your award that you mm. got. You, know, you, you won a lot of money. I mean, New Zealand, that's come about in the context uh, uh, of employment advocates, that there have been some questions around that um, there's a case um, that was in the newspapers um, about a woman who did a trial at a cafe and she was awarded $15,000 because they actually basically treated her like a slave, gave her a trial run and didn't pay her. She had an employment advocate and the employment advocate took that whole $15,000. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so... ELAN's um, the Employment Law Institute of New, um, New Zealand is a really good body. Um, there's lawyers, there's um, employment advocates there. There's some very good employment advocates and there's some employment advocates that used to be lawyers and that have chosen to practice as an employment advocate. It's one of the exceptions in the um, rules, our rules of professional conduct, that employment advocacy, um, you can appear in the employment court and in the Employment Relations Authority without a practising certificate and without having a law degree. It's about access to justice, actually, that not everyone can afford a lawyer or wants to go to a lawyer. On the other side of things, an employment advocate doesn't have that regulation because there's actually no body that regulates employment advocates, even if they're a member of Elan's Elan's has some disciplinary functions, but they're not statutory ones. Mm. You might have seen in the paper that actually ELAN's and the Law Society and Chris Barfoy, et cetera, have been talking, and Andrew Little have been talking about regulating employment advocates. And it's something that I welcome because... The problem with an advocate, too, could be that someone had been out as a lawyer for a very, you know, been a lawyer, very short time, not very experienced, decides that they don't want to really work for a law firm or a government department, et cetera, and decide to go out on their own account. For me to have gone out on my own account as a barrister, I had to have extra training and I had to um, do a course called Stepping Up. And I have references and proof that I was is actually of an experience level that meant that I could actually be unleashed on the public without any supervision. An employment advocate, even if they have been a lawyer, may not have had a requisite period of experience. They are not regulated in terms of CPD, of, of actually keeping up their training and study. And they're not subject to any sanctions if they overcharge or if they actually don't do things well. The only recourse with an employment advocate would be that you would have to sue them. (laughs)
0: that sounds expensive then you have to get an advocate to it
1: (laughs) actually this this really nicely brings me to the second lesson i've learned from this evening's talk which is that you should never defame a lawyer i'm guessing because they um they can defend themselves and they can probably do it quite well there's
2: an old adage which which i um live by and that's that a lawyer that represents themselves as a fault for a client.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> really? Is it actually that bad?
2: Look, it's not the best. Like, um, it's the same as representing your own family. You just don't have the same objectivity when it's you or your family. And it's something that that's said to you right from law school, really. Um, and it's well known. But, you know, people do um, people do undertake their own litigation. There are lawyers that go and fight their um, parking fines, etc., cetera, and, and get much <laughs> joy out of doing that. That's not my sort of thing.
1: I have to be honest, if I was a lawyer, I would be that kind of lawyer that challenged my own parking tickets. I'd quite enjoy that.
2: Yeah, there's a bit of sport in it. Um, if you've got the time and the energy to do it, then you know more power to you. Um, it's not my thing. I think like- in today's day and age, you know, um, it's very easy to fall shy. But you, there's not just defamation. There's harassment and bullying, and there's um misuse of electronic data mm-hmm. and all of those sort of things. And there's you know you don't want a restraining order against you. You don't want a takedown order, which um you can apply to the court to have your website taken down.
1: Well, we already uh, lost our, our newsletter mailing list today, um, so losing our website, mayor
2: If you look during the protest, you know, if you, um, some of those people were filming themselves 24-7
3: <laughs>
2: and saying some very not wise things. And um, and you know some of them found themselves arrested for making threats about prime minister the prime minister and various other people because it's so easy isn't it just to fire out staff on a live feed or um, and if you're looking at some of those um, citizen journalists and their description of what's going on at the protest, you know, when fires are being lit and all the rest, they won't use names. because
0: I don't know who you're talking about. <laughs>
2: yeah,
1: um, I do. I know exactly who she's talking yeah. about.
2: <laughs> you, know, so, you know, and I watched that. And went, are you looking at a different thing to me? Like
1: It was weird, wasn't it? It was Antifa. It's all Antifa.
2: <sighs> it was. And then it was also um, the comments about, Andrew Costa, um, look what you're making people do. It was very much stirring things up. You know, the consequences of all of those videos are starting to come to roost because the police are starting to charge people that in
1: video. And yet a lot of it's not gone. Like for my piece on uh, Counterspin last weekend, I was going through their old videos and all the protest stuff is still out there. There are like some 10, 12 hour long live feeds that are still up online. And presumably there is a lot of incriminating stuff in there, but they they haven't figured to take it down.
2: Well, and that, dealing
0: know, with the smartest people here,
2: or is it hubris? You see, because I, I think that some of them actually do believe that they're a bit ten foot tall and bulletproof, and they think that they're justified that that means justify the ends because they actually justified and getting out their message to people who need to know. And I, I think that's one thing we forget about anti vaxxers et cetera, is that they are in some ways, the genuinely heartfelt beliefs that a lot of them have, that all of us have actually been harmed by being vaccinated, that must be quite a scary world to be.
1: Yeah. And I think that's the case, actually, with most of the people we deal with, much as they are misguided and they obviously don't understand things properly. Most of them are caring people who are trying to help. Psychics are trying to help grieving people. Alternative medicine practitioners are trying to help those people that medical science can't help with their acupuncture and their homeopathy. All of these people really think that they're the hero, that they're doing the right thing. And they just don't understand and refuse to listen to people that tell them that they've just got it wrong.
2: There's a market there, you see, you know, if you think about women and women's treatment by doctors in the health system, if you think about Sandra Coney and all of the issues around gynecological health, women have had a terrible bag. And, you know, I used to be 139 kilos and I'm now nowhere near that, I'm like a size eight and tiny now. But when I was bigger, everything was put down to my weight and I wasn't listened to. But I have some serious autoimmune conditions. I've got rheumatoid arthritis. I, I, I've i had that probably since I was a teenager, but I was completely and utterly naught. And there was a time in my life when I went and saw acupuncturists and all sorts of other alternative medicine people. And every single one of them listened to my story and the pain that I've gone through and the things that I've gone through to... Um, try and have children through IVF, et cetera, try to, you know, all those things that they actually supported me in my health journey better than a doctor who gave me 15-minute um, appointment for $90. No. So the, that's the elephant in the room is that the, the medical profession um, have actually in some ways brought some of this on themselves with the way that they run, you know, um, GPs, practices, et cetera. <laughs>
0: yeah well it's it's such a hard problem to solve though isn't it because when you look at the stats they're going to they're saying that in the next five or seven years there's going to be a huge shortage of gps well, you can't make things work if you need to spend three quarters of an hour with each patient and there's only a certain number of gps it just no, doesn't not work you, out
2: and you treat if you treat symptoms rather than um looking at root causes and that too then people will have will have years of um mm. Being unwell and not knowing that they've got motor neurons disease, or like my dad, that they had Parkinson's for 10 years. Mm. And I guess the
3: other thing that we see with a lot of alternative medicine is that, you know, there is that payoff. You get the hour long appointment, the 45 minute appointment, but you do pay a little bit more for you know, for that time, whereas, you know, not, not well, I mean, that was sort of my experience in many ways. You pay or you're not more. paying more, but you're. You,
2: sell to, you know, like you always go in there for your acupuncture, come out with like about $300, $400 worth of herbs and other things. Well <laughs> you're
1: paying you're paying someone that's got um, less salary, right? Because they've they've got less in the way of expenses and they don't have the professional oversight, they're not having to pay for continuing education, and everything. I mean, a homeopath isn't being looked over by anybody. Nobody's checking that they're doing things properly because they're just people, not.
2: Many of them have indemnity insurance and all the rest, ain't that? You know, that's the other thing that you go to a professional and that professional, like myself, has to pay for indemnity insurance, etc. But you do that because, actually, you want to protect yourself, your house, all of those other things. But also, you know, it's a responsible thing to do. And if you stuff up, it means that the insurer can then actually resolve that issue with the person you did stuff up with, true that, you know, you don't bang on in
0: litigation
2: and that person has to Go through a whole big case suing you because you've actually been responsible
0: and got indemnity insurance. And, and I guess the other the other point with these alternative medicine practitioners is, is that they seem to be keen to sign you up for an ongoing series of appointments. So while the uh, they might uh, treat you well and listen to your story, they want to hear it over and over again and uh, give you sort of ongoing service as a revenue yeah, stream. I'll-
1: Now, an interesting one there, I believe, and I've I've not seen the stats recently, but the last time I looked at them, uh, because ACC funds several alternative medicines, but they'll only fund a certain amount of sessions, apparently when you look at something like acupuncture, you will see that... Um, looking at the number of sessions, I think it's seven sessions they'll pay for. And it turns out that the vast majority of people need seven sessions of treatment or they need 14 sessions of treatment because you can go back and resign for another seven sessions. And so there tends to be like the acupuncture will say, acupuncture will say, come back for as long as you can um, keep getting it paid for on ACC.
2: I think um, not all of those though are full payment either, like their code share. So you still have to pay a contribution.
1: Sometimes mm. you do, yes.
2: Yeah, um, which happens with physiotherapists, it's true as well. But um, yeah, look, um, I guess ACC. Um, need to cater to what people want and want to do and how they want to treat things. I I, I don't know what the evidence based um decision making is around which treatments they actually fund.
1: It's we could not spend great. <laughs> a long yes, time but that's a topic that. for another night. Yes. <laughs> yeah.
0: I think uh yeah this has been a fascinating conversation uh and uh, I've I've learned a lot a lot from it. It's been wonderful being able to pick your brain, Deanne. Mm, Absolutely.
2: I can answer within the um, auspices of um, not being able to give you legal advice. Um, And nobody should go off and run off and take that as advice about what to do. But um, do take the advice seriously about being careful online and what you say.
0: Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think that's one of the characteristics of skeptics, that we actually do care about things that are correct and the truth. So um, that at least is a part of our shield that uh, we generally don't go and uh, make up stuff about people.
2: The good thing about sceptics and scepticism is that you are weighing and measuring information and as, as you find it, as it comes in, um, you consider whether or not it's of value or whether it's truthful or whether there's someone else that actually counters that and is their opinion or um, research better? Um, mm. Does it come from a better university? Does it come from a better research team? Are they more credible? Um, what peer review have they had? Those are things that are all important. And likewise, you know, look, I, I, I online you see people and I say to them all the time, let's not play lawyers. Like, don't go looking up statutes and, um, <laughs> and then <laughs> telling people what to do about various things because you know, um, the average lawyer has had four years at law school, done professionals, and, you know, has then practised and actually learned the hard graft while they were actually practising, very much like doctors. Mm. And,
0: well, that, that certainly is the uh, the source of the internet acronym, I'm not a lawyer.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, I got my law degree from Google, um, <laughs> you know, or a weightless packet. Um, and then there's a rising tide also of... Um, people being anti-experts in general in mm. way mm. And, and, and it all being about relativism and feelings and um, not about evidence and lottivism and mm. that, that's concerning
0: yes all right well I think we need to uh, start winding things up so um, Bronwyn you were going to talk to us about membership corner
3: Yes. Um, you know, as always, we're keen to have new members. You get to you help us uh, put off this podcast and you get an awesome newsletter in return. And yeah, be able to help us put up the conference, which we hope will come up sometime in November, maybe.
1: Fingers like um, and becoming by becoming a member, you might be able to help us to afford indemnity insurance as well, <laughs> which would be really nice.
2: Yeah, well, be we the need first with Craig because Craig's problematic. <laughs> yeah. be, be the first be the first
3: people to receive our Patreon request when we need when we need to pay for a lawyer.
0: You will crowdfund the lawyer.
2: Oh, yeah. the, other thing, the other thing, sorry, uh, like you asked about, people not being able to afford lawyers. There is a pro bono clearinghouse. I'll give a bit of a plug for it that if people do have legal problems and they're serious ones and they need help, then there's a clearinghouse where a bunch of lawyers have actually volunteered to be able to do providing mm. stuff. Yeah. So I can, um, I'll can i provide the details of that to Craig and that um, can go out in your newsletter so that if you're ever in trouble and you don't have funds to deal with things, then that's something that's available um the law society are also going to fund
1: more legal aid etc so that people have access to justice so just okay idea. that's cool but we'd still like indemnity insurance so please still join us um which is at skeptics.nz/join
3: <laughs> <laughs> Sounds about right. Um, but in terms of activities coming up this week, Mark always gives me crap for not getting the title right. This time I do. Um, on Thursday at the Fork and Brewer at six PM will be the science based healthcare activism in the pub meeting.
1: <laughs> Is that <laughs> That's what exactly we exactly what it, it says on it?
3: meetup? That's exactly what it says. I mean, I I, I don't know what we called
1: it. I just know that every week before now you've got it wrong, but I I will trust you that you look this up. Well done.
3: I did my research. (laughs) And then on the 17th, um, which will be next Friday, um, Wellington Skeptics in the Pub is having their usual um, fortnightly meeting. Again, 6 p.m. inside the Intercontinental Hotel in the lounge. Um, Interesting thing I found out while doing my uh, newsletter article for this week is that Norwex, the multi-level marketing cleaning company, is actually going to have the New Zealand side of their national conference at the same hotel at the same time as one of our August meetings. So uh, Mark and I also, if you join us, you can fund these shenanigans, are debating whether we're going to great gate crash. and. um,
1: yeah. Buy some, buy some MLM we, can we say can we legally say gate crash? If only there was a lawyer here to help us with that.
2: <laughs> well, is there a gate and are you crashing it?
1: <laughs> I the like it. Semantics and words. The word it word. Is. <laughs> Literally, we're not crashing into a gate, so we're all good. Um, And just um, briefly for anybody that is interested in coming this Thursday to our activism meeting in Wellington, uh, Daniel Ryan and I will be trying to finish off a project that's been a few years in the making, which is putting together a $100,000 challenge that we can use to challenge anybody that's claiming they have psychic abilities or any kind of magical nonsense um we're hoping to use this as something of a rhetorical tool that when Ghost hunters and other people get into the media and start making ridiculous claims that we can invite them to take part in our challenge to prove that they have these abilities. And we've managed to secure hundred thousand um, dollars to back this up. So we've we've had the advice of a couple of lawyers a few years ago on a document that we put together, um, and we're just hoping to finalize merging their suggestions and um, and then hopefully sometime this year we'll be able to release this as a fun project
0: and bring on the applicants
1: no applicants it's invite only
0: oh wow
1: (laughs) this is one of the big things we've learned is that if you have it open to all applicants a lot of the people that apply are not the kind of people you want to be dealing with (laughs) lesson from susan Gerbic of guerrilla skepticism on wikipedia there she's she's helped with i think the big million dollar randy prize and yeah they said a lot of what they deal with is um people with mental health conditions and other things people that just are very very hard to deal with and are not the kind of applicants that they were looking for so invite only hopefully for us is going to work a lot better
0: Very good. I'll be uh, interested to see uh, how that that turns out.
1: Hopefully it will turn out. I mean, it has been a few years now and we've not managed to get it finished yet. So fingers crossed, we can uh, we can sort this out Thursday at the Fork and Brewer.
0: Provided you don't get uh, distracted by the the MLM conference or is that on a different night?
3: That'll be be that'll be in August
0: oh right okay you weren't listening Craig what, what were you doing well I live in Auckland so my chances of actually shoving up for this are pretty low so, so he's That's
3: envious is what he is
0: I'm just <laughs> I'm just intrigued as to how exciting a, a an MLM conference about uh, cleaning cloths can get <laughs> but,
2: <laughs> listen but it, you're just it's jealous the, the product as well it's you know
1: uh, Go and okay. find your own MLM, or actually Scientology. You've got Scientology in Auckland. I'm well jealous <laughs> of that. Go and join Scientology.
2: What do you mean? Do have it in Wellington anymore?
1: No, they. I I did kind of join Scientology in Wellington, but it was two people in a flat on uh, on the hill, Mount Victoria. It so wasn't I a great the, meeting. Um,
2: church that was on what um, street?
1: Oh, was there a Scientology building there?
2: No, it's the it's the oh. a room for
1: um, Christian science,
2: Christian science. Yeah. 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 We,
1: Bronwyn and I went there last year. We're going back at some point this year. They have like a testimonial um, event where everybody talks about how God, not that God healed them. The whole Christian science thing is that reality is not real. It doesn't exist. Um, and so illnesses aren't real because reality is not real. Um, So everybody talks about how, you know, their realisation that reality isn't real allowed them to get over their sickness by realising it's not a real thing. So, yeah, we're going to sit in on that and have some fun. Uh, What sicknesses are you going to go with? Oh, I don't know that I could lie. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's an obvious one for Christian scientists who have been ambivalent at the very least about uh, vaccines in the past, you know, because none of it's real. Should their members get vaccinated or not? It's been a tough question for them.
2: Oh, yeah, I can see that they'd struggle with that. Mm.
0: All right. I think uh, we've got on for long enough. People are going to start complaining about the length of our podcasts.
1: No, people have been saying they want <laughs> more. They've been saying they really enjoy it and longer. Could they please have longer podcasts? They and we're Mark just delivering. Of Mac.
2: More of Mark. That's your <laughs> Very
1: good. Well, you have been listening to
0: the ENR podcast. If you'd like to give us some, spe- uh, some feedback, you can come and talk to us on Twitter at Pod or send us an email to newsletter at skeptics.nz. And we will see you all in a couple of weeks. Bye.
1: Sayonara. Bye.
2: Bye.